Hey everybody up in Modesto and surrounding California areas. This is Doug Jones and I'm coming to see you at Modesto Comic Con July 9th and 10th. So come on out to Modesto Comic Con and see me. We'll be doing autographs and photo ops and hanging out and the hugs are always free and I love them. So we'll see you there. Geekish Cast special episode with Carlos Pedraza regarding the Axonar lawsuit. Welcome back to Geekish Cast. I'm your host, Jeremy, joined today by Paul Vieira. What's up, Paul? What's going on, Jeremy? Oh, same old stuff. And today we also have a special guest, Carlos Pedraza, uh, writer, director, produ- producer, filmmaker. How you doing there, Carlos? Pretty good. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. I know it was kind of short notice, but um, I do appreciate you taking the time. Hey, I was uh, looking forward to it. Fantastic. Um, so, Carlos, let's talk a little bit about what you got going on right at the moment. Um, you're working on a movie called Something Like Summer. Why don't you give us a, a rundown of that? Sure, I'll make it. I'll make it quick. It's my third feature, um, and uh, it's a uh, romance uh, with music uh, based on a series of young adult novels by uh, Lambda Award-winning author Jay Bell. And uh, it's the first of that series, and we're bringing it to the screen. So, looking forward to. Uh, we're in the middle of post-production right now. Just spent uh, several days editing in Los Angeles and uh, getting ready to fin- get it, ram it through post-production and have it done hopefully by the end of the summer. Oh, fantastic. Uh, is there, do you already have a web presence for it? Yeah, we do. It's somethinglikesummer.com. So then let's talk a little bit. I was looking at your back catalog a little bit, and there was a movie you did called Judas Kiss. I believe you wrote that one? Yes, I wrote and produced that one as well. That was my first feature. Um, that was back in 2010. It was released in 2011. Uh, and it's sort of a... Uh, time travel, fantasy, magical realism story about a guy who travels back in time to prevent his uh, younger self from making all the mistakes that he did. And uh, he ends up meeting his younger self and uh, chaos ensues. So it's a, it's kind of a fun story. Uh, it's got a kind of a nice magical realism uh, bent to it. And um, it was a lot of fun to make as, as a first feature. Uh, the star of that um, of that film actually has gone on to do uh, a lot of other feature and television work. His name is Richard Harmon, who appears as a uh, regular now on the 100. He plays Murphy. Oh, okay. Uh, Excellent. So which, what movie, what, what's your second uh, feature that I missed there? My second feature was a mystery thriller called uh, The Dark Place, uh, set on a family wine estate in Northern California. And, um, you know, it's your, your typical kind of someone's out to get someone else and, Lots of blind alleys to to run down and you know okay. fist fights. So, and what part of northern what part of northern California does it take place? Uh, it's in the part of northern California known as uh, Oregon's Willamette Valley. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it's set it's set in uh, in in California, but we shot it in in uh, Oregon, which has a a really great set of um, of production incentives for smaller films like ours. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's a great place to to shoot movies and uh, very welcoming atmosphere. We shot our our third film, something like summer there as well last summer. 
Oh, fantastic. Also, strangely enough, Washington and Oregon are starting to take off as a wine-growing country. Oh, yeah. Washington's been, for a long time, Oregon's been a little bit behind, but they uh, they now make uh, wonderful wines. Yeah, which which blows me away because it sounds too cool and damp to get a like a robust red, but you should be able to pull a sweet grape out of there pretty well. Uh, you can, and actually, uh, the west side of both states is wetter and cooler and damper. Uh, but the east side is just as hot and sunny and dry as uh, any other part of, of uh, you know, California or any wine-growing region. So it's really a question of finding the right grape, and uh, that's suited to the climate that you're in, and you can, over time, really uh, cultivate some wonderful, wonderful uh, wines. Sure. What's right, I take it you're a wine drinker. Then, right? uh, I I wouldn't call myself a, a, a an expert by any means, but I do I do like a good bottle of wine. What's your, do you have a, a favorite red or a favorite white? I do. My favorite red is uh, is a Cabernet Sauvignon, and actually my favorite uh, is from a, a California winery called Visa Tui, and it's really hard to find. You can only order it online, um, and it's in a very small number of stores. It's not a huge label, but it's uh, one of the most full-bodied uh, reds I've ever had. Great. Um, and actually for whites um, – uh, boy, what have I had lately? Uh, I mean, I like a good Chardonnay, like any other yuppie, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I tend to drink whites just, you know, in the summertime and I look for the most refreshing ones. So, yeah, yeah, I'm a total you know, white I, guy myself. Well, I was going to say with me, I haven't drank wine much in the last few years, but I went through a two, three year period where I drank a lot. And what I found was that come summertime, I really like a Riesling or a Gewurz. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of the Gewurz. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm always actually also a big fan of uh, Johannesburg Riesling, which is a little uh, a little fruitier than your typical Riesling, but uh, but really great. Yeah. Or or the Sauvignon Blancs from, uh, I think it was New Zealand that I liked quite a bit as well. You know, I had one of those when I was in New Zealand about two years ago, and uh, I was impressed. Yeah, they're they're gra- it's it's weird they're grassy mm-hmm. or citrusy. I, I can't even really put my finger on it, you know. But anyhow, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Make me thirsty over here. Yeah, it's a little early for me to start. Well, not that early, but um, so Carlos, let me ask you how did you how did you first get bit by the filmmaking bug? Well, I got bit early. Actually, I made my first film when I was about twelve years old. Uh, science fiction, of course. Uh, based on a, on a, a story I'd written for a creative writing class in, in, uh, in school. Um, and I had a great time and I fell in with other friends who, who liked making movies and did that all through high school. Um, did some radio and TV work when I was in college. Um, and then I, I graduated college in journalism and worked as a journalist for a long time. And, um, I've had this is, and then came back to filmmaking about, uh, 13 years ago uh, because of Star Trek. Uh, one of the fan films, one of the oldest and longest running fan films, Hidden Frontier. Um, back then, there, there weren't many. And uh, I really admired the uh, the heart that was behind it. And so I pitched a story idea to them, which they accepted. And uh, then it was all down or uphill from there, depending on your point of view. And uh, I went on to write 13 of their episodes and sketch out their last uh, three seasons or so of their, of the series. And, um, then I jumped over to Star Trek new voyages and wrote and produced there, uh, for, uh, for several years, uh, before I decided to take the leap and start making my own. 
Uh, you know, I was going to say it was kind of weird, and I thought I really had a handle on fan films in general because you know I'd started watching them before there was even high speed internet. Mm-hmm. Um, I never heard of Star Trek: Hidden Frontier. Yeah, it uh, it debuted in two thousand, and uh, and ran. Um, well, it had spinoffs. I mean, <laughs> a fan film with uh, a fan series with spinoffs. Oh. Uh, I think it had like three or so. In fact, I think there's still uh, two audio series uh, spun off uh, from the original that uh, continue to run today. So uh, it had a, a long and storied history. That's, that's outstanding. Well, I'm going to have to go back and see if I can check them out then. I, I just couldn't believe I had never heard of it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it, was, it ran for uh, seven years, uh, just like any proper Star Trek series. Uh, had 50 episodes. Uh, over the course of those seven years, uh, its seasons ranged from as many as nine in a year to we settled down ultimately to about six episodes a year. So we were in production, uh, you know, almost constantly. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a lot, especially for a fan production. Yeah, it had a it had a full blown cast and, uh, you know, long running storylines and uh, its own uh, its own mythology and, and canon. Uh, it's set post post Voyager um, in uh, in the uh, Briar Patch that was introduced in uh, in uh, oh, insurrection. insurrection thank you yeah. uh, so it's it's a it's in an established part of the Star Trek universe but uh, really takes off uh, on its own and uh, it was a, it was a great uh, I, I call my time in fan films as the best film school ever well, I imagine that's a great place to cut your teeth. It is. I mean, that's, yeah, right? Yeah. Everything's new, and you kind of have to DIY your way through everything, I assume. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, and then when I when I jumped over to, to uh, Star Trek New Voyages, um, I leapt in, you know, feet first. And uh, it was great because I got to work with a lot of Star Trek veterans and both behind uh, the scene, behind the camera and in front of the camera. And uh, so it was kind of a dream come true for you know, for a guy who's been watching Star Trek since he was three years old. I get that. You know, my third, uh, not to talk too much about me, my third birthday party in 1976, my mom baked me an Enterprise cake, and it was all Star Trek themed. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's, that's, yeah, that's the kind of Star Trek nerd I am. That was, so. uh, that was during the dark years before... Uh, oh, yeah, well, that was all, all syndication. All syndication. Hell, you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't even see the cartoon anymore at that point. Yeah, that was the time. Uh, a lot of people don't don't know what it was like to have gone through the the lost years. <laughs> well, yeah, I still think of Star Trek: The Next Generation as the new series. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so you got into Star Trek fairly young then. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, I was three when it debuted in 1966. So uh, so I've literally been watching it for most of my conscious uh, existence. Um, and uh, yeah, just always, always loved it. And when I found out about Hidden Frontier and uh, in Exeter, actually about around the same time in a newspaper story, um, I started, you know, looking into them. And I found out that Hidden Frontier was an ongoing series. And uh, I remember it was uh, it was a President's Day weekend, so it was a long weekend. And I decided to just watch everything that had been produced up until that point. And I think they were in around their third season uh, at that point. Yeah, this was around 2003, and. Uh, I just thought, you know, I mean, it's done against green screen and the production values are really low, but, you know, it was ambitious. Uh, it had a, you know, a, a cast of regulars that just poured their heart and soul into the, into these stories. And I thought, I think this would be a fun thing to do. So I did. And, 
you know, send in my first uh, my first story pitch. Back then, they would let the cast and crew vote on their story pitches, and that's how they decided whether to accept uh, the script for production or not. So that's how I got started. After that, they said, you know, we'd really like you to help us out with writing some of our other our other episodes. So here's some treatments and see what you can come up with. So I did two, and then they asked me back as a as a staff writer and uh, then as a producer. Outstanding. Um, now, see, Exeter was the first series that I found. So that's the one that was where I cut my teeth on fans. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was super impressive and changed my life really. <laughs> Well, and then let's let's go ahead and let's talk about New Voyages slash Phase Two. And I've noticed they've taken their website down, and we are we are headed towards that direction. But mm-hmm. um, so everybody, including Paul, has a good grounding in the background of Star Trek fan films. Uh, New Voyages actually started something completely different. They decided they were going to bridge the gap between 1969 and 1979 and fill in between the end of the Star Trek series and the first Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you know, they, for what it was, it was pretty good at the time. And people also have to remember, this was during a dark, we didn't see any more Star Trek coming up. <laughs> you know, it had been canceled off of television again, and it was another dark Well, day. not quite. Actually, New Voyages debuted while, uh, while Enterprise was, uh, was in production. So, right, but Inter- Enterprise was rocky its last two seasons. Sure. Every season we were told it was going to get canceled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was... You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. It was not off the air yet, but I think a lot of us were sitting around just kind of like, well, here we go. Yeah, well, once it was off the air, of course, then, then uh, you know, between then and, and uh, the, the reboot, um, there wasn't a lot to, uh, in terms of, you know, film and television for, for people to, to grab onto, although Star Trek's always been quite alive through uh, through other media. Certainly, film and TV are, are the ones that where it means the most to people, so... Yeah, so fan films really stepped into that kind of void that was created, and um, and you saw a, a flourishing of you know what people call the, the golden age of Star Trek fan films because there's just there's dozens of them, and you know every day I I discover another one. Um, you know I keep a list of uh, of them uh, on uh, my website axmonitor.com and. And uh, yeah, it's a ever-growing, ever-changing, um, ever-evolving list of, of creative endeavors, which is which is pretty amazing. And a number of them uh, just as long-running as Hidden Frontier or New Voyages. Um, Starship Intrepid's been around for a long, long time, um, and and did some crossover work with Hidden Frontier, and uh, they they've kept going. Nick Cook in Scotland, who's uh, the executive producer and star of that's just been uh, he's been one of the I think really quiet but but strong leaders in the fan film community. Yeah. Um, so, well, let's just let's go ahead and kind of address the uh, the gorilla in the room. You mentioned your website, Axon Monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for a decade, decade and a half, there fan films kind of existed in a happy spot of blissful ignorance of CBS. They really didn't push down too hard on them. Um, then something changed, didn't it? Well, yes. You know, at the time when I started at Hidden Frontier, we were very, very careful about uh, what what we did with uh, with the franchise. Um, we released our episodes online, obviously, but they were in fairly low resolution. Like even looking at them now, it's like, oh, wow, that was a really tiny wind video window to watch that show in um, because we didn't want to do anything super high resolution because we didn't want to be perceived as 
trying to compete with with uh, CBS or Paramount. Um, and uh, we, we never sold uh, any DVDs or uh, any media whatsoever, any physical media whatsoever, uh, no T-shirts, nothing like that. We did do our own conventions for a while, but uh, uh, but we tried to be very careful, as did other fan films, to to not cross any lines about anything that could be even remotely considered uh, commercialization of, of the franchise. Um, and that's the state in which uh, fan films live for, for quite a while until the advent uh, about five years ago or so of crowdfunding, and that completely changed the landscape um, because now while uh, we had sort of inched along towards being able to accept uh, limited kinds of donations to help with specific production costs, um, the idea of raising tens of thousands and now hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions of dollars via crowdfunding pe- platforms for a fan film that was uh, that was a, a huge change uh, and, a, and a watershed moment in, in film, fan film history. And, uh, you know, so, you know, Renegades was out there. Even Phase 2 was out there. Star Trek Continues was out there. And ultimately, uh, Axanar, uh, in, in terms of, of running effective uh, and successful crowdfunding campaigns, and Axanar, most of all, uh, raising about $1.3 million uh, on their way towards a full $2 million had the lawsuit not happened. And, um, and then, of course, there was the lawsuit. So um, Axanar, uh, unlike the other uh, fan films, uh, never produced a full, a full episode. They uh, did a 20-minute teaser called uh, Prelude to Axanar that was very successful. It's won a lot of awards and got a lot of people excited about the possibilities of, of fan films um, as they were moving more and more towards a professional level of of production which is a good thing for fans who who love the stories that a lot of these fan creators wanted to tell but a dangerous thing in terms of fan films relationship with the copyright holders cbs and paramount um and then with axonar it became not just an issue of the quality of the uh of the production but uh the commercial revenue generating activities uh in which it, it began to engage uh full-throated um running their own uh online store uh, you know the the perks that they offered in their crowdfunding campaigns were you know legitimate high quality physical products um blu-rays dvds uh cds of their soundtrack uh it became a i mean they they planned uh books they had starship models they even went so far as the famous uh, Axanar coffee. And, I was waiting. Yeah, I know. You can't, you can't have Axanar without the coffee. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that was a line that, you know, John Van Sitters uh, from CBS in his podcast last week uh, said, you know, we thought it was a pretty simple, a pretty simple principle that you, you just don't make money off of it and, and we won't bother you. CBS won't bother you. But now money was being made and um that crossed a line and you know on on december 29th the lawsuit was filed for copyright infringement and we are where we are today uh, in the middle of a of a you know landmark lawsuit um that even if it never goes to court ha- is uh history making in terms of uh what it means for copyright what it means for fan productions 
uh, that will be forever changed because of this. Oh, yeah, and it's been very divisive, too. Um, about a year ago, actually, it was a year ago. I can't even remember what it was. I kind of hit my the straw that broke the camel's back moment with Star Trek fundraising, crowdfunding for episodes. Um, somebody was going to do a Chris Pike series, and they even got Ray Wise on board. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's exciting. I said, but every day I'm getting bombarded by new Star Trek fundraising, this, that, and the other, especially, and forgive my language here, I'm like, that goddamn accident. <laughs> every time I turn around, he's launched a new podcast, a new this, that, and the other. And I actually got in an argument on a Facebook Star Trek fan group. Um, and just to summarize what I said, I was like, guys, I'm a salesman. I know when somebody's trying to sell me something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, this is vaporware. This is Scientology and Amway wrapped up in the Star Trek bubble. And I had to quit the group shortly thereafter. Well, if you'd stayed, stuck around long enough, you might have been kicked out. So, you know, that was the, that for me was kind of the, you know, because, uh, again, you know, my, my career started in Star Trek fan films. So, uh, so for me, when the lawsuit came out, I was very interested because I know, I mean, I haven't worked in fan films in, in, seven, eight years. So I've been away from it for, for a while, but I, I know a lot of the people who are in it and on both sides, actually. Yeah. Right. Uh, so some of them uh, aren't very happy with me. Um, and some of them are, but, but the fact of the matter was that, you know, once I started seeing that people were getting booted out of groups for just asking legitimate questions, that left a really sour taste in, in my mouth. And so I thought, you know, there, I used to be a reporter, one of, my, one of my nine careers. I was a reporter for the Associated Press and worked for a couple of newspapers as well. And um, I thought, you know, there's a story here. Uh, so I started looking into it. I started looking at, you know, their open and transparent annual report and finding it was, it fell far short of that and raised more questions than, than gave answers. And, uh, and the more and more I found out, I thought, you know, this is, this is not the way that it's being portrayed in a lot of the, the, the more major media of, you know, little, little David being, uh, the fan field David being threatened by the corporate Goliath. Um, it was actually a lot more, uh, complex than that. And, and certainly not that simple. Um, so, uh, by mid-February, I was like, you know what? I have enough information here, and there's so many people arguing about this without the facts or with only half the facts. I thought, you know, one of the best things I think I could offer the community is just to gather all this in one place uh, and just make it available. And that's that's how Axiomonitor was born. I was going to ask. So I, I figured once I knew that you had a uh, journalism background, that was probably the part of your brain that got tickled with you. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, that this story weaves together so many different parts of, of of my various careers. Between you know, I was a nonprofit manager, uh, and you know, there's the the whole nonprofit kind of aspects to how a lot of fun film fan films are are operated, um, uh, played into that as well. Uh, and, you know, as a producer of independent films, I understand a lot of the challenges that you face in, in trying to produce the best thing you can with as little money as, as is available. And, um, and then there was a journalism aspect. So it all kind of wove together into, into one, one thing that, uh, uh, takes up quite a bit of my time these days. (laughs) That's going to be a, yeah, surprising how all your, all your interests all came to boil in this one part. Yeah. (laughs) funny how life works yeah um so let me ask you something here here's here's what concerned me 
from the little bit of reporting of yours that I have read now, almost nobody from Prelude to Axanar is still involved with whatever they've got cooking in Axanar. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah. That's correct. And uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, most fan films will have kind of what I call a burn rate <laughs> of, of mm-hmm. personnel because, you know, you can only afford to put in that kind of time for so long in real life. Oh, sure. Pulls you away. Uh, but I think in this situation, uh, there was a, there was a change, you know, as I started looking at Axonar's fundraising and its goals and, and I started literally graphing it and, and looking at, at how its goals compared with its fundraising. And if you look at the two lines, they are, you know, one is just barely ahead of the other as it should be, um, for, for a long time. And then there's, there was like this inflection point where, where all of a sudden, the the goals took this sharp upward turn while the the actual fundraising kind of went you know in, in the trend line that it was in and I realized that that was the point I think where where things changed where they realized we've got something big on our hands let's do something even bigger and it and and the goals just kept getting larger and larger and and astronomical and that required uh, constant fundraising hence the the constant appeals you you received uh as, as did so many other people um which in many ways might have even been fine we would be living in a different universe if axonard finally just said okay we have enough let's do it right and actually made it because the thing about about filmmaking is you know you can always look at the budget of any film and just and you can pick it apart and find all kinds of problems um that's just the kind of of, of industry it is but if you complete something and it's good and people like it, they don't care about that. You know, so many of these other issues wouldn't have been issues if they just produced something. But the fact that nothing was being produced or not much um, and what was being produced was really kind of commercials to get more you know, fundraising. Um, it just nothing happened. And that's when that's when uh, the ambition around, you know, the opportunity for to create their own studio uh, presented itself, and they started pursuing that first. Um, myself, I would have done it the reverse. I would have made the film, proved what we're able, capable of doing, and then looked for, you know, legitimate uh, funding to to establish a commercial venture. But going about it the other way, uh, as it turns out, uh, was not a good idea as far as CBS and Paramount were concerned. Well, in just there's kind of an odd thing. There's two different old school hustle tactics I see going on here. First, it's there's one called salting the mine, mm-hmm. which is where you go and put a bunch of gold in something, mm-hmm. bring investors with you, and you're just like, shit, look, we're tripping over gold everywhere we go, and then they give you a bunch of money. Then there's another one called the takeaway sale, where you go, well, you know, if you don't do this, I'm just going to have to take it away from you. And I see both of these things were constantly... It was Mark Twain had a quote that it was easier to make... Uh, what is it? Easier to make a fool out of somebody than it is to con- convince them that they are. That they've been fooled, yeah. 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 And um, that's kind of what the takeaway sale is. You threaten them with, like, hey, guys, you've already dumped 180,000 grand, 180 into this. It wouldn't be a shame now if you didn't give me more and I couldn't finish this movie. Yeah, uh, it's the, the sunk cost fallacy. Yes. Um, and yeah, you're seeing some aspects of, of that here. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it ultimately becomes, and so much of filmmaking is about this, really. It's about priorities. 
what you have to sacrifice in order to keep your your eye on the prize. And the prize, usually as it should be, is producing the film, getting it complete. Um, when something else takes priority, um, other things fall apart. And I think that's what we've seen happen here. And, and you know, uh, Christian Gossett, who directed Prelude to Axanar, um, you know, he and I have been talking for, for months now. And, you know, he rec- recently came out in public talking about his experiences and why he left. And, um, and in fact, you know, the, the, the studio was at the core of that. Um, when, when they turned the tide, when Alec Peters turned turned that corner and said, you know, I'm, I need to make this studio. I need to make this studio happen. It needs to happen first. It needs to happen big. Um, and by all accounts from the people I've talked to, it's a, it's a darn fine studio. Uh, unfortunately they're, they may never produce the thing that it was built to produce. You know, well, and as, as I understand it, his original plan was to film on new voyages sets. That's correct. That's correct. And uh, because they exist, they would have to have been redressed and things like that. Um, and the um, and I actually ag- agree, believe it or not, with with uh, his decision to not do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because the sets weren't great, um, although they're lit in a very sort of 60s kind of way and, and painted in a 60s kind of way. And I think he was aiming for uh, a production look and feel that was a little grittier than that, um, that may not have really, they may not have really been able to pull that off visually with those sets. But be that as it may, the uh, one of the challenges of, of shooting New, Voyage, New Voyages is that it's shot up in Ticonderoga, New York, which is it's several hours out of New York city and there aren't, uh, you know, it's an economically depressed area. Um, there aren't a lot of people with filmmaking experience there. There's not a film crew. And then the people who are there are the ones who, uh, have gotten experience over the years doing, uh, new voyages. But I can tell you the difference between having, you know, a Los Angeles kind of crew with that kind of experience and having a, a crew of volunteers, um, they, they more than pay for themselves because the, the speed at which you're able to operate in filmmaking is so much faster when you've got experienced hands as, as the grips and the, and the set dressers and all of the things that, that are cogs in the wheels that make fan film or any film work. And, um, and I think that, that the concern was that, um, in upstate New York, that far in upstate New York, you're not really going to be able to get the crew that you need to be able to, I mean, even putting up, uh, actors there. There's just the, the, the hotels aren't fantastic up there. So it's, it's a challenge. So the idea that it was smarter to do it in Los Angeles is one as a producer, I would agree with, but the idea that you should build your own studio in a city that is rife with studios that you can rent. Um, that was where I would have drawn the line as well as Christian did, uh, Christian Gossett did that this is not something we should be spending this money on. Donors expect to see the money they give show up on the screen, not show up in a physical plant that um, that is really intended for something up and above and beyond this production. And uh, and in making that the priority, everything else suffered, including, most importantly, the actual production of the film. Oh, the thing they were actually supposed yeah. to be doing? Yeah. yeah. Funny how that works. Huh. Um well, you know, I always there are two things that I think that bothered me the most. Um, one is not only were they building a studio, they were building a studio with the intent to rent it out to people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then secondly, I read a quote. I don't remember if it was recent or in the past, 
but uh, Mr. Peters states, I am not an Elvis impersonator pretending to be Captain Kirk mm-hmm. or something along those lines. And I'm thinking, no, you're a guy with no acting experience pretending to be Captain Kirk's hero. That is, that is even more egregious to me to, first off, kind of out and out attack James Cawley without even having the guts to say his name when you're making yourself Garth of Izar. I just those two things together. I was just like, it's kind of creepy. You're kind of weird. Now. It's uh, you know? I've I've really refrained from trying to to draw too many uh, personal conclusions about what Alec and, and some of the people who work with him do, and mm-hmm. have preferred to stick you know pretty much with with the the legal uh, implications the, and the fact side. Sure. And you know, but but at the same time, you know, having been at the receiving end of uh, messages from him and and people who work for him or. Uh, speak for him um it's it's difficult not to take it personally um you know but the fact of the matter is that it, it does uh it it creates a a poisonous atmosphere in what used to be you know at at worst before a friendly rivalry amongst the the various fan films i mean fan films like any kind of artistic production are you know they're rife with drama that's just part of part of what it is but this you know has gone far beyond drama unfortunately and um and and, and threatened the, the very existence of fan films and and that's one of the reasons why i started axe monitor because as a as a community that gave birth to my own career um as a filmmaker i just felt like it was important to to bring the facts to bear because so much of the of the debates going on was not based on facts and based on you know even things around around copyright law that most people uh don't understand and would get confused with trademark and they thought that you know CBS and and uh, uh Paramount uh by not suing other fan films meant they couldn't sue Axanar when in fact that's exactly what they're allowed to do because it's up to them uh under trademark uh not necessarily you have to vigorously enforce your trademark wherever, but that's not what's at, at issue here. Copyright was. So that was an example of something I thought, you know, sure. let's clarify this for people and create a central centralized place for people to be able to say, hey, if you go here and read this article on copyright infringement, you can see what the stakes are and why they are what they are. So um, so that's, yeah, kind of how, how we ended up where we are. Okay. So let me, I, I have to ask you this then, are you often then seen as an anti-Axonar or do you think people take you as a uh, fair and impartial arbiter. Uh, again, that's, that's your, uh, it all depends on your point of view. If you're an XNR supporter, uh, I'm, you know, the most biased person out there. Um, but you know, I, I can only think of, of what, what was it? Stephen Colbert who said, you know, facts have a well-known, have a well-known bias. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, and I, I try to, to be as factual as possible. Uh, although I've also been upfront about what my, what my perspective is and my perspective is I care about fan films and I care that they continue. And so my reporting, uh, comes from that, from that point of view, I look for, uh, for, for facts that, uh, that, that bear on, uh, whether fan films are going to be able to continue in the future or, or not. And so, um, so to that extent, yeah, I definitely have a, I definitely have a bias in that direction, but the idea that somehow I'm, I'm anti-Axonar, uh, I have to calm other people down uh, when when they go far, you know, into left field around around Alec Peters and things that Axonar are doing. Just remind them, you know, the facts don't bear out what you're saying. You know, let's just stick with what we know because that's a, a, of enough concern, frankly. Um, you know, it's a multi-million-dollar copyright lawsuit, and it's affecting an entire community of, of a creative community. 
Um, let's let's focus on that instead of going spitting off on these you know conspiracy theories. Um, you know where we find facts to support them, then we'll report them. But uh, up until that point, let's let's keep our eyes on uh, on what really matters here. And uh, again, it, the effect on on fan films uh, existing in future uh, are a big deal. Right. So, do you think this? Well, actually, you have a list on towards the front of Axe Monitor right now, mm-hmm. showing that out of all the ones you keep tabs on, only one fan production is still going forward, really. Well, that started to change, uh, actually, okay. in, the last, uh, in, in the last week, um, since, uh, uh, since John Van Sitters made his appearance on, uh, on Engage, the official Star Trek podcast, uh, last Wednesday. Um, as he began to explain a lot more about the, uh, the context around, around these new guidelines, um, what they're trying to do and what they're actually not trying to do. Uh, the, the phrase that I used in, in my story on it was it's less a straight jacket and more of a belt. Uh, it's, it, the, the guidelines are intended to support, uh, the creation of, of fan films, uh, and create a framework around which people can be creative. They're not intended to strangle people or restrain them. Although by its nature, there is some restraint, but it's a restraint that's built around clarity. Um, you know, the creative part of me, uh, you know, the writer uh, part of me uh, looks at the new guidelines and say, OK, there's a there's kind of a net loss here. Um, the ability to not be able to do, uh, you know, hour long or feature length uh, Star Trek fan films anymore feels like a loss to me. Um, and in the days when uh, when. CBS looked on fan films with a sort of a benign neglect, uh, although they were, they've always been aware of them. It's not that they weren't aware. It's just that they realized, you know, these, these aren't a threat. These are, these are our fans. We care about them. Um, you know, there were plenty of times when people stepped over lines when they could have said, stop it, no more for anyone. And instead they gave some gentle, uh, reminders about what shouldn't be done and everyone got back on the right path. And, um, so, so, I, you know, we will miss those days. We'll miss those days where we, we could pretty much do what we want as long as it wasn't anything that actually hurt the franchise. And, you know, I haven't found a fan film yet that really does that because people, they love Star Trek and, and fan films reflect that. Um, but unfortunately, that's over now. Um, but I also look on the, the reality as an artist that um, one of the best things you can offer an artist is uh is restraint um saying you can go this far and not any further but inside this line you can do almost anything you want and that's what i see as the upside of these of these guidelines um is a 15 minute episode or 30 uh 30 minute episodes um a, a constraint yes it's a big constraint but i'll tell you that nothing focuses a writer more than than a deadline and a and a uh, running time limit you you make choices uh in order to tell as much stories you can in the small amount of runtime that you have available and that usually ends up being something more creative and more powerful than than just letting people one of the worst things you can do to a writer uh offer a writer is too much freedom too much opportunity because we get fat and lazy um, and we try to cram all kinds of things in that don't really belong there, that don't really move a story forward. And, um, 
those days are gone too. And there are plenty of fan films, including some I made, uh, that, that, uh, in which we indulged ourselves in that way. Well, not having the room to indulge ourselves, that forces us to, uh, to be better storytellers. And I think that, you know, one day I do hold out the hope that, um, that we'll be able to come back around to CBS and say, you know, we've behaved and we think that, that you can loosen some things up here because we've proven that we can, we can follow the rules and, um, and, and we can potentially get some relaxing of, of some of these guidelines in ways that uh, uh, just today for given, given the atmosphere that's been created by, by Axonar and its lawsuit, um, they had to do what they had to do. CBS. Oh, sure. Hey, Carlos, just real quick. I mean, probably a lot of people are familiar with the guidelines, but I, I'm not. Is this something that guidelines have been in place that CBS and Paramount haven't been enforcing, or is this something new that's come out of the lawsuit with XNR? This is, uh, this is brand new and, and uh, history-making. We, we have never had a situation where a major copyright holder, a, a Hollywood studio or a publisher uh-huh. or anyone like that, has ever said, it is okay for you as fans to use our intellectual property as long as you follow these guidelines. That has never happened in any kind of written down black and white kind of way. Um, you know, one uh, uh, IP lawyer that I quote a lot in on Axe Monitor uh, calls it tolerated use. Uh, the idea that they know that, uh, that fans have been infringing on their copyrights for, for decades, but they don't, but they tolerate it because they're, they're small. They don't make any money. Um, and, um, yeah, there's no money to be made. If you were to sue them, there's like no point to it. And, yeah. and, um, and so they've largely tolerated it. And again, that changed with the first, with the advent of crowdfunding and then with the advent of Axonar that really pushed that, uh, too far as far as CBS and Paramount are concerned. And, and, uh, th- this was their reaction. So while it, it definitely does, uh, put a little bit of a stranglehold on fan films. It does it in a way that still says, we acknowledge that you can make creative contributions to this universe that we've created and that we've tried to nurture. There are roles that we can play. Our role as a studio is to make network TV shows of that length and feature films of that length. Um, and as long as you don't threaten that, you can do less than that. And so we have the guideline around, you know, a single self-contained story of 15 minutes or a maximum of two parts. So 30 minutes total. So, okay. so these are brand new. They came out two weeks ago. Uh, and there were an informal set of guidelines that, um, that kind of built up. It's sort of like the difference between the U S constitution and the British constitution. The U S constitution is written down in black and white and the British constitution is really, it's an amalgamation of, case law and common law and tradition and just a lot of different things that came together. And that's what fan film guidelines up until 2016 were. Uh, it was as, as different fan films tried things out and were told no by, by CBS or, you know, be careful or, or, or we policed ourselves. Uh, that, that, those were the guidelines that we stuck by. And, and Alec Peters at one point, if you go back to Trek BBS, at one point he was one of their staunchest defenders. And, uh, but by the time uh, the lawsuit was filed, many of the, those uh, informal guidelines were things that uh, Axonar was very explicitly breaking. Uh, do you think some of these guidelines are going to give some fan filmmakers pause before they make stuff, or you, 
you think they're just like, oh, now we have this, we're happy to have this set of rules or boundaries that we know that we can fall in? Well, it's like any kind of, of trauma. You go through your uh, stages of grief. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, so at first, uh, and, and you've seen it very predictably uh, since, since uh, the guidelines were released, there was first uh, kind of a denial, like this can't be happening, and then very quickly into anger. I mean, that, you know, how dare you do this to your fans? And, mm. and uh, we're still, for many fans, we're still in the angry place. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're seeing more and more since John Van Sitters came out and, and clarified some of these guidelines and, and said, you know, what CBS's goals were with, with putting out these guidelines. Now you're getting people more into the bargaining part of, of their stages of grief and, um, and, you know, ultimately are going to be coming around to acceptance. And, and you're starting to see that already. And, and the list that we maintain on Axe Monitor of, of, you know, which productions are, going to continue and which one's given up um we're that's changing every day and it's hard to keep up so luckily i have one person who's helping me with that and, and staying in touch with the various uh fan productions and uh and updating that uh that chart on on axe monitor but you know i suspect that a good number of those uh will in fact continue in some form within the boundaries created by these guidelines oh, that's interesting does this does this fall just under like films or does it kind of reach over into like fan written fan fiction and like podcasting or something like that? It is, it is only for films. It is only, only for, for films. films. Okay. Uh, it's very explicit about that. And John Van Sitters uh, emphasized that as well in, in his interview uh, on the engage podcast that uh, these are just for films. Um, and again, it's because, you know, you don't see, although there have been uh, such things as, Kickstarters for Star Trek fan fiction uh, to be published, but they've been the exception rather than the rule. And the problem with fan films is it was becoming now the rule instead of the exception. And so hence the guidelines. So, um, so this does not apply to fan fiction. It doesn't apply to audio dramas. um, Just, just fan films because they're the, the biggest, most visible and the most expensive to produce. Yeah, totally. Well, it'd be the easiest to confuse with the source property exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. CNN true. accidentally aired part of Renegade when they were talking about the uh, the new Star Trek. Yeah. Movies. Yeah. And, <laughs> and CBS noticed that. I mean, they noticed it. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, that was you know there were a number of signals that they got that said you know we need to do something about this. We need to start thinking about about whether we need guidelines. You know, and the thing is that. The idea of guidelines didn't just happen because of the accident lawsuit. Um, there have been people who've thought about guidelines for fan films for probably a few years now. Um, crowdfunding and accident just made it uh, more imperative. Well, just brought it to a head yeah. quicker yeah. is what it did. Well, yeah, the crowdfunding, I, I, could, I think everybody could see that coming up because as soon as one person had crowdfunded a fan film, everybody was doing oh, yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I I do hope to see is Carlos. I assume you know how Star Wars came about, then, right? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I I would hope to see come out of this. Is somebody go well? I can't do a Star Trek fan film, but I can take these ideas and incorporate them into something new. Well, and that's that's really what. Um, and again, I want to avoid sounding like I'm an apologist for CBS because um, even though I, you know, I believe in their copyright as a, you know, as a, a, a writer and producer standing up for their copyright protection is standing up for my own as well. Uh, but at the same time, 
I think it's important for people to understand what the context is uh, for, for what they're saying and why they're saying it. And so um, rather than leaping to the conclusion that this is, I mean, there are people who in the last week have just, they, they insist that what they're trying to do is kill fan films and this is the way they're doing it. And, and they're simply not. They're simply not. They have always been supportive of fan films. Um, things got out of hand. And so this is the steps that they're needing to take. And um, it, it creates room for, for, for people to, to continue to be creative. Exactly. And basically what this does is it creates an area and says, if you stay within these boundaries, we will not sue you. Correct. It does not, you know, it does not say you are guaranteed to be sued if you go outside of it. It's best to assume you will, people, if anybody's listening. Don't. Well, there are already people planning on testing it. You know, there's one, oh, there's know. one production called uh, Star Trek Raven, uh, although now, of course, it's Raven, a Star Trek yeah. fan film, as, uh, according to the, to the guidelines. And they're, they're picking and choosing. They're saying, we're going to pick the, the guidelines we think really bear on, uh, come to bear on copyright, your copyrights. Uh, but for anything else, we're going to we're going to do what we want. And that's a really dangerous position to be taking, you know, the week after these guidelines come out. Um, so there are a lot of people uh, in the fan film community who are basically warning them, you know, you need to be careful because um, no one is entitled to use this intellectual property. And a lot of people seem to come from the perspective that they are. And we're simply not. We're. We're not entitled to it. Uh, being fans of it doesn't mean we own it in any way. And um, so they, they proceed at their own risk because anyone who tries to flout these rules uh, immediately after they've been released um, is asking for trouble. And I, again, I can't I don't and can't speak for for CBS. But, you know, if, if you if you put rules out there and the first thing someone does is try to break them, that means they're testing you. Um, which which is kind of forcing your hand possibly and and we may see something like that happen um, again I don't know um, I, I do know from what John Van Sitter said in in his interview that you know they're not going out of their way they're not becoming copyright police they're not going out and checking every single website and checking out all the all the episodes you've put up on on YouTube you know they're just not doing that um, in in most cases if you just stay as a production by fans for fans uh, and don't try to become bigger than your britches, um, they, they may ne- never even know you exist or care that you exist uh, from the perspective of having to look deeply at, at your actual operations. But the reason so many of those guidelines exist is that if you do step out of line, it gives them a lot of different, uh, a lot of material to use in coming after you if you, uh, are obstinate about uh, about defying them. Well, they gave them the rope to hang themselves. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, that's kind of gives us all all the info we need there. So the axe monitor thing, you're gonna you're gonna keep updating this as long as there's news to update. I as assume. long as there's news to update, and it may be for a while. Although you know, there's uh, as I like to call it, stirrings in the force that uh, that there could be a settlement sometime this month, but. You know, this is this is a wacky case. People end up choosing things I would never choose, and it ends up prolonging the case. So, um, so even after, I mean, I remember on May 20th when J.J. Abrams and Justin Lin made their announcement at the Star Trek Beyond fan event that, uh, you know, coming out in support of of, of Axanar and saying that this lawsuit was uh, was going to go away. 
uh, not dropped, by the way. They never said dropped, uh, but but that it was going to go away in a few weeks. Um, you know, my my I was on a plane when it happens when I landed. You know, I turned on my phone and I all these notifications come up on my phone. You know, have you seen this? Have you heard about this? Have you heard what's going on? What does it mean? And I thought, wow, um, Axonar just got a huge gift. And then that was on a Friday. And on a Monday, the following Monday, one business day later, they countersued <laughs> CBS and Paramount. I'm like, really? That's, that's the stance you're going to take on when you've been giving this, given this huge PR and potentially legal gift is you're, you're, you're filing a counterclaim. Um, and you know, I, and I understand the objection that their, their attorney made, which was that, you know, there was a deadline for them to, to file an answer to the original lawsuit and, uh, and that it's in their client's best interest to, in, in their opinion, to include a counterclaim, which is totally fine. My only issue is given what had just happened one day before, don't you think now would have been a good time to go to the judge and say, we'd like an extension to see if we can work this out without having to go to trial? And judges like that. And Axonar's line on this, of course, is that this judge, federal judge, Gary Klausner, doesn't like delays and he doesn't like giving extensions. But the only reason he doesn't like that is because people are trying to draw out a case, whereas this was an extension to try to bring it to a close a lot sooner. And I think he probably would have said yes, but it they decided not to do that, or maybe they felt like they had used up his patience with two failed motions to dismiss and, you know, and, and other legal paper, paperwork that, uh, that uh, prolonged the time for them to answer the original legal complaint from December to May. So that's like five months uh, that they were able to avoid this. So, um, so maybe they felt they used up their, uh, the goodwill with the, with the judge and they had to do that. But, but it sure didn't look good, and uh, and to not have even tried, I think, is uh, was a, a significant choice. That's the way I took it. I, uh, there's a friend of mine that we've had been having friendly arguments back and forth over this. Uh, he is pro R and I have ended up on the side of not pro R. <laughs> and that was the first thing Monday morning. I think it was like six thirty a.m. Pacific time. I get an email. Um, you know, Axonar counter sues Paramount. And I'm like. Can't you people just let this go? <laughs> can't I, can't we just all get along? I know. I was I was uh, again. My mouth fell open. I I couldn't believe that uh, that they'd been given this like largesse by you know one of Hollywood's most powerful directors and producers, and uh, and and they still sort of you know spat in the face of of uh, of the people who are suing them when they could have potentially taken that opportunity to to try to move to a settlement. Uh, a lot sooner. Yeah, well, that's outstanding. Well, Carlos, um, we're just about out of time, but I, I do have a question for you. Sure. I noticed that uh, one of your tags here says that Clark Kent is your superhero. Yeah, I always felt that uh, that Clark Kent uh, was the real superhero and that Superman was the alter ego because Clark Kent is the one who has to always keep his mouth shut and make the sacrifices and uh, and so forth, and you know, Superman has you know heat vision and super strength, so he's got, he's got it all. But but uh, Clark Kent has to hold back, and I think that's more often than not a sign of uh, of being heroic. Yeah, I always liked in um, oh Dean Cain's was it Adventures of Lois yeah, and Clark. Yeah. He in one episode said he goes, "Look, I'm Clark Kent. Superman is something I can do." Yeah, yeah. I always love that, and it's very much the opposite of Batman. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
So yes. Did have you guys seen the the new extended edition of Batman versus Superman? I haven't yet, and uh, but I plan to. I plan to. I'm a big DC fan, so I will. Me, me too. I will be tracking it down soon. If you get a chance, I, 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 if you wouldn't mind, shoot me an email or something with your thoughts because I would really enjoy a, a filmmaker's perspective. Sure. But I feel that the the editing, the cohesion, the flow of the movie. And it actually gives Lois something to do besides look cute in a bathroom. <laughs> let me let me know when you watch that because I'd be really interested in hearing what your thoughts. Sure, are. I've always been a fan of of Lois Lane. Actually, when she got to do something cool instead of always being the one who had to be saved. Right. Well, she actually gets to do some reporting and investigation in in, the, in this edition. So it's kind of nice. Paul, have you seen it yet? No, I'm I'm still waiting on the the Blu-ray to come out. Oh, you're not going to get the digital? Yeah, because I want to buy it twice. No, that's a good but point. my patience is not it's wearing thin. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's outstanding. On. That's what they count on. Yeah. Yep. All right. So Carlos, uh, in the intermeaning time here, where can people find your websites and your uh, the stuff you got going on in your projects? Sure. Uh, well, my film is something like summer dot com. Um, so that's uh, will probably be coming out early next year. Uh, Fingers crossed uh, on distribution for that, um, and then uh, on the on this case, uh, axamonitor.com is uh, the wiki-based um, journalism website where uh, I provide daily coverage on uh, the Axonar lawsuit. Paul, if people want to find you on Twitter, where can they look for you at? I tweet at Paul Vieira seven nine. Okay, and guys, if you want to find us? We're geekishcast.com. Facebook, facebook.com slash geekishcast. And I tweet from at the geekishcast. Oh, and I, Thank you. I, t- oh, go ahead. I tweet from at Axamonitor as well. So you oh, yeah. Call I, me I should have remembered that. I that's where I found you. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> so that's at Axamonitor yep. or uh, Carlos's uh, website's Twitter account. Yep. All right, Carlos, anything else you want to say before we go? Uh, thank you very much for having me on board. It was, this hour went by really fast, so uh, it was fun. Must yeah, and I'm glad I, I did not anger a guest. So we're all, we're all very good here. Yeah. 